Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew once again, Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 11 and read through verse 17. Again, the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading in just a moment uh, in verse 11. This is the third of five sermons planned for our Christmas series in which we uh, ask the question and answer the question, who is this King of glory? And we have taken these first three sermons in the series uh, to dive, I wouldn't say uh, ultimately or as deeply as we could, but we have uh, dived deeply into this genealogy. And I've confessed to you that I have been fascinated by it. Now, uh, you give me the privilege of spending most of my time living in a text that I'm going to preach on a given week, and that's a blessing to me, and it's always a means of grace. It's always uh, the reality that God's Word does not return void in my own life. And, of course, what I try to do in preaching is to not only bring you the information that I have gleaned, but also something of the excitement and, yes, even of the power of God that is unveiled in every word of the Word of God. And as I have gone back, and, and I don't know how many times I have read these genealogies, and I don't know how many times I've looked behind the genealogies uh, to the stories uh, that are uh, represented in those genealogies, uh, I have been extraordinarily blessed. And I understand that you could be intimidated, uh, you could be incredibly bored uh, by this list of names. And maybe uh, trying to, to read these names and think about all of the history that they represent uh, is uh, just, just too tedious of a task for you. But let me assure you of this, and if, you, you know, if, if you're one of those people, just kind of give me the big picture, just tell me where you're going and let me get there, then the genealogy is the testimony to the faithfulness of God. In fact, we might say it's a testimony to the glorious faithfulness and the graciousness of our God, that God will do that which he has purposed and that which he has promised uh, to do. And so it's, it's interesting if you look at uh, the gospel of uh, Matthew, it, it truly functions like a piece of literature that is advancing or asserting a particular truth or an argument and proving it. And it functions uh, like this, that Matthew is going to make an assertion, and we see it here in verse 1, that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he's the son of and the son of. And that opens his book, and the balance of the book is spent giving the evidence that the assertion that he makes that Jesus is the Christ, the one that fulfills these promises, that Jesus is indeed the one. And the book closes in chapter 28 with Jesus' announcement that everything that Matthew said was true of him and everything that Matthew proved was true of him is true because what? All authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the pronouncement of a king. That sounds like that Jesus Christ approves of this message. And so it functions, and I can remember taking uh, grammar and composition classes, and the way we learn to write an essay is you go, you tell people what you're going to say, and then you say it, and then you tell them what you've said. It's really simple. And that's really the way a sermon functions. I tell you what I'm going to say, then I say it, and then at the end I tell you what I said. And so what does Matthew say? Jesus is the Christ. Now I'm going to tell you all about the facts that Jesus is the Christ, and at the end, what does he do? Jesus says, I'm the Christ. I'm the one with all authority. 
Y'all could act like that excited y'all as much as it did me. I worked hard on that. But it's true. And so let's look at this final segment of the genealogy as we continue to answer this great question. Who is this king of glory? Verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. And Abihud was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliahud. And Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And from the first word until the last word, from Genesis to Revelation, it is your word. It is designed to reveal to us your son, our king, and our savior, Jesus Christ. May we in every text see him as the one who indeed is holy, holy, holy. May he in our words, our actions, our attitudes, be the one who is high and lifted up. And God, how we would pray. We would pray this for this season. We would pray this for every season. That he would draw all men to himself. Lord, that for those who have never laid claims to the benefits earned by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. I pray that you would draw them to salvation. And Lord, for those who have laid claim to him as their Savior, as their Lord, as their King, that we would live in an ever-increasing awareness to the great reality that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As a bit of an acknowledgement to sometimes the challenge of reading uh, texts such as this, um, I can remember in high school and in college, uh, after repeated, uh, finishing the required world history classes, that I only took American history classes. Now, why is that? Well, because there were so many dates, places, and names in world history that I couldn't keep it straight. It was hard. It was much simpler to remember George Washington and Abraham Lincoln uh, than some of these guys that I'd never heard of before. And so when we go back into the history, the history of redemption, if you go back and you start, even if you just pick up in 1 Samuel and you read through the book of Second Chronicles. This is a substantial reading, I'll, I'll grant you. Uh, you will be overwhelmed with stuff that at best you're unfamiliar with. And to keep it all sorted out and, keep, and, and to grasp how it fits together and how God uh, weaves all of these events and individuals together uh, for the purpose of presenting His Son for the purpose of accomplishing our redemption, uh, is something that is uh, uh, quite uh, the challenge. But I would say to you, the more times you do it, the more deeply you'll become appreciative of the one who is the King of glory, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ended last week, and I'll pick up this week, there in verse 11, and we'll talk about the faithless 
kings. Back in verse 10, we see the mention of this incredibly evil king, Manasseh. And during the reign of Manasseh, the apostasy of the nation of Israel escalated uh, and continued and advanced to unimaginable uh, depths. And it was during that reign, about 680 years before Jesus would come, that the prophets announced, and it's recorded in 2 Kings 21-12, that God says, Behold, I'm bringing, or I, I am going to bring upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster, the ears of everyone of, who hears of it will tingle. That, that just the, the talking about the judgment and the terror that God is going to bring upon this nation and this city, just the hearing of it will do something to your ears, that, that it affects you because it is so awful. Now, we know when we looked at last week, after the reign of this incredibly evil king, Manasseh, there is a grandson that appears on the king whose name is Josiah. And if there's anything that is instructive to us uh, from uh, the life, the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, the, the kingdoms, the, the theocratic kingdom, the old covenant people, is the necessity, the essential reality of the Word of God. That is, that in the reign of Josiah, the Word of God was recovered. It was rediscovered. And God did what God does and what God will do. He brought about a spiritual awakening. And the nation was spared for a time. And so why again do we emphasize preach the word? There, there is so much out of my control in this life. The one thing that's under my control is my commitment to preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Because that's what God has placed in my hands as the means through which he will work to do that which only God can do. And so we see that in Josiah, but the tragedy is within the next generation. The evil, the apostasy returns. And for those of us that are parents and grandparents, how sobering should that be to us? That, 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 could, could we, and, and all of us remember force-feeding our children, they didn't want this or that or the other, and, you know, you poke it in them. How you wish you could poke Jesus in them and make them digest it, and we can't. And it humbles every single one of us, and it reminds us of our dependency upon the God who acts and the God who uses this word that is his. And so we see a, a kind of a laundry list here. We uh, notice how, how it's phrased here. Josiah is the father of one name, Jeconiah, and his brothers. And that, that's kind of an unusual way of, an unusual phrase here in these genealogies. Because this family was an unmitigated disaster. They were a train wreck. Okay, both as a family and as kings of the nation of Judah. And the apostasy continues and escalates uh, through uh, Jehoiaz. Uh, he, is, he reigns for three months, and King Necho takes him to Egypt as, as a hostage. Eliakim, also known as Jehoiakim, he's made kings, and this terrible phrase repeats itself. He did evil in the eyes of of the Lord. He was taken in chains to Babylon. Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah or Kaniah, he did what was evil and he was brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar with the precious things that God had ordained to use in his temple to honor his name. They were defiled within the pagan temples of Babylon. What a terrible, terrible thing to happen in the life of the nation. And of this, we mentioned this Jehoiachin or Kaniah or Jeconiah. He's known by different names. He is the one that Jeremiah says, you'll be childless and no descendant 
will ever sit on the throne of David. Just a terrible curse upon him. And he is, after being taken to Babylon, there's a king whose name is Zedekiah that is appointed uh, as the king, and he did evil. He rebelled against God. He rebelled against the word of God delivered by the prophet Jeremiah. And as all of these events that we're talking about in this time frame that's kind of referred to here as the deportation, from 605 into 597 all the way to 586 B.C., those, those three years in history are kind of pinpointed as points of which the decline of the city and the nation was perpetuated by the assaults from Babylon. And so ultimately, the city and the temple are destroyed in 586 by this king, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of Babylon, one of the greatest kings of the ancient world. And this Zedekiah tries to flee the city, tries to, to run to safety. And they capture him. And they take him to Babylon. And his eyes, he is blinded. And the last thing he sees is his children being murdered before his eyes. And so, what am I saying? That God did exactly what he said he was going to do. That is, if you're faithful, I will bless. And if you're faithless, I will curse. And the curse will be powerful and it will be painful. And it would seem as though God has turned his back. He has closed the book, so to speak. But again, another point of the genealogy is God is at work, even in the darkness. Even where you look at it corporately, cosmically, the dark days of our world, or whether you look at it personally, in the dark days of your life which are sure to come, there are those days. Amen? And God is at work, and God is using those things. And so we move uh, from these faithless kings to this failed kingdom. And we've, we've tried to, to highlight, and I, I did a good bit of this last week, the distinction and the contrast between blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. God created to bless, and he blessed. And yet in our rebellion, we bring upon ourselves uh, the cursed, first of all and foremost, in our first father, Adam. And so did the kingdom fail? Well, certainly in one sense, we can say it did. And it, it reminds us in, in the sense that human beings can only change and be changed by the work of God internally. You can't make enough rules. In fact, let me tell you something about rules. And y'all know this is true. The more rules you have, the more opportunity you have to break them and the more incentive you have to break them. Parents? Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and so, but... The kingdom provided the setting through which God would preserve a people for the sake of presenting this one, this king of glory, our Savior. That, that the design of the kingdom, God preserved the kingdom, first of all, to be faithful to himself, because that's what he said he would do. And second of all, for the sake of presenting his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. Now, we've done this before, and just for the sake of time, I can't do this all today. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you read through that, and your Bible may have a heading that says blessing and cursing, and God spells it out. And he says to the nation, there's a way in which I will delight in prospering you. That's the way of obedience. And all of these good things, as I've said many times before, you will have everything that the kingdoms of the world assess as being a sign of your greatness. Economic, politically, you, you name it, you're going to be great. And I will delight 
in your prosperity because it's going, to res- it's going to reflect something of my glory. But should you disobey me, it is all going to go sour. You're going to be, every, every blessing will become a curse. You will be frustrated in everything that you attempt. And here's the thing, and I will delight, I will delight in establishing my righteous judgment upon you and reflecting something of my holy character in your punishment, okay? And, and so that's exactly what we see unfolding as reflected in these genealogies. In fact, after the name of Zerubbabel, which we'll talk about in just a minute there in verse 12, simply said, I ain't got a clue who the rest of these dudes are. Do you? I mean, they're lost to us. They're certainly not in the Bible. There might be a few extra biblical testaments to their, to their, you know, what they did. But they're gone. Now, there were records, and most likely the records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I mean, Matthew had, had documents, but we don't know anything. They never accomplished anything worth making the Bible. I'll put it that way. Okay, so the kingdom has failed. It's in, it's in decline. It's in demise. The king is in exile, and the, yet this, this failure does not thwart God's promise to Abraham and David. And, and one of the things I've tried to stretch my brain on, and you know my brain's pretty small, and so it, it really doesn't have a lot of elasticity sometimes. But how do we understand this unconditional unilateral promise to David and before him to Abraham? I'm going to bless you, and there's going to be a king, and he's going to rule forever. And then this, these old covenant promises, if you don't do what I told you to do, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And so he proves himself faithful to all three. Okay? That's kind of one of the real unique things of, of the Bible. And he, he demonstrates ultimately his faithfulness to his purpose, to himself, in fulfilling this great promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the world, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, how, how do you do that? Well, you give to him a greater son. His name is Jesus, who blesses the nations and in whom the nations are blessed. And so... The failure, the faithlessness of the genealogy and all the generations it it reflects is actually a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Now, just a little point of application. Now, I know that I'm the only one that would say there have been a few seasons of faithlessness in my life. I know how pure all of y'all are how godly, and, and how absolute, I mean, over the top, every single one of you, right? I mean, there, yeah. Are you not thankful to the faithfulness of God that has been proven biblically and in our own lives? We were talking about this morning. Talk about faithfulness. All the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And I'm going to receive them. That means they're going to repent and believe. I'm going to save them. And guess what? I'm going to raise them up on the last day. You know what I deserve? I deserve to be condemned on the last day. But God says what? Because I'm faithful. And I am able. And I am powerful to do what I said I would do. I'm going to raise them up on the last day. So, king in exile failed. Everything about the kingdom has failed. The capital city is in ruins. The, the people are, are homeless. We've talked about that. The blessing of home, the security of home, the security of Eden. And they're wandering. And God gives them a city, Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to dwell among you because you're uniquely my people. And they've lost all that. Several years ago for our Thanksgiving sermon, we looked at Psalm 137. Again, I I don't have time to get into it today. But how? This is from the exiles after 586 
in Babylon. How do we sing the songs of Zion here in this pagan land? How, how do we rejoice in the goodness of our king? How do we rejoice in the goodness of our God when we're in exile? And every follower of God has asked a similar question at particular junctures in their life. And the answer is what? We have a faithful God who's faithful to do that which he says he will do. And so Jeremiah tells this nation, you're going to go. Now, we love Jeremiah 29, don't we? You, you Bible scholars nod your head. Wait, wait a minute. Bible scholars know. You that are not Bible scholars nod your head and just agree with me. You, no, just, just pretend you know what I'm talking about. I know the plans that I have for you. Now, we love to kind of jerk that one out and, you know, God's going to give me a bigger house and a nicer car and all that. But what does God say? You're going into exile, and you're going for 70 years. That's my plan, and that's my purpose for the, this people, because they've rebelled against me. Now, I want you to go, and I think this is instructional to us as well. You go have families, and you go work hard, and you flourish, and you do well in this environment, because the plan I have for you is after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. Okay? Because I'm the faithful God, and I, I can do that. And so Jeremiah prophesied all of this as it was unfolding. So the temple is burned. The artifacts are looted. They're taken to Babylon. The things designed to honor God, to give testimony to his faithfulness, are being abused. And get the picture here. In the ancient world, one of the things you did you would go into the city that you had conquered, okay? And you'd take some of their people, because I'm, I'm the boss and I can do what I want to do, so you're leaving. You destroy their buildings, you destroy their temple, and you take the things used and utilized in, in the uh, worship of that God, and you take them and put them in the, the, the temple of your God to prove that your God is greater than their God. Okay? That, that's, that's what you're doing. How dark is that? Well, wait a minute, that's, that's the way you prove your God is greater. So the things that we utilized in the worship of God are in a pagan temple in Babylon. Where is our God? Well, he's at work, even in the dark. During this time, Ezekiel prophesied, or he sees in Ezekiel 10, that the glory that God promised to be among the people that dwelled in the Holy of Holies. He sees it departing the temple. In a sense, in a sense, never to return. Now, many times we get into this business of the greatness of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Well, let me just make one really, really clear distinction between about the difference. The glory departed the old covenant people of God, and that was a disaster. God will dwell in and among his new covenant people forever. You'll never get the glory departing the New Testament, the new covenant people of God. That alone, and there are other things, but that alone, the superiority of this new covenant that is ours because of the faithfulness of God. Well, let's look very quickly at the faithful prophets of this generation. Again, they had the old covenant. They had the law. And this is what God said. And so they were constantly saying, look, look at this. Look at this. This is what God said he would do. And we're rebelling against him. And sometimes we, we, we talk about these things. Uh, he says, go build a monument. Well, why? That takes a lot of time. That costs a lot of money, blah, 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 blah. Because every time you walk by that monument with your child, I want you to look at that monument and I want you to tell the story that is represented in that monument of how God proved himself faithful 
in that event and in that moment and in that place. And so again, these prophets faithfully called people to repentance. They constantly reminded them of the faithfulness, of the goodness of their God. And they constantly warned them of judgment that was to come upon them should they not obey God. And yet you all, and, and, and boy, the, the, those warnings, they're, they're tough. I mean, they, they really cause you to cringe. But typically, in the message of the prophets, there's at the end this message of hope. Yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to preserve a remnant because I've got a plan. I've got a plan that I'm going to accomplish through uh, these uh, people. And so we, we see in the prophets such as Jeremiah, you know, I'm not a proponent of utilizing crude and, and vulgar language. Sometimes you'll see in movies or TV or book, they, they want to show that somebody's really a bad character and they use bad language. And that, that's, I get it, I, okay? But, but I'm not an advocate of that. But read some of the Old Testament prophets and find the kind of language they use to call attention to the vile nature of the rebellion of God's people. I mean, why, why the, it, there's a shock value to it. There's an intention getting value to this, to, to use particular words in particular contexts, to be reminded of how terrible your sin is. And so Jeremiah does that, and he tells them very clearly there's going to be 70 years, and he writes them a letter as to how God is going to bring them back one day and he tells them for the purpose of establishing a people under the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. There's a day coming when God is going to have a new people living under a new covenant. The prophet Habakkuk during this time. There's an age-old question. So it kind of flows out of that question when sometimes we talk about the problem of pain. Uh, why is there such great evil in the world if there's such a great God that rules over it? Another kind of aspect of that is why do the righteous prosper? I mean, why do the unrighteous prosper? Okay, it's another way of looking at that. And so Habakkuk looks, and the most evil nation and the most powerful nation on the earth is Babylon. And yet they're destroying the people of God. And God says, listen, they'll get theirs in due time. Right now, I've got a purpose for these evil people. They fit within my plan, and I'm going to use their evil upon my people for my purpose to punish them, to remind people of my holiness, to remind people of my faithfulness, to remind people of my justice, and then I'm going to preserve a certain number through that terrible punishment for the sake of accomplishing that which I have promised to accomplish. And Habakkuk ends with that wonderful poetic statement though the fig tree not blossom oh there, there be, be no harvest on the vine what is my resolve whatever comes I I will trust in my God we see the prophet Ezekiel from Babylon again communicating this is what's going on and during this time, this amazing prophet Daniel. And again, I wish we had time this morning. Most of you are familiar with Daniel's interpretation of the dream of the great statue. And there God unfolds through the words of Daniel. This is how world history is going to flow out for the next six or seven hundred years. And describes in detail what we're about to look at, how a king known as Alexander the Great shall ravage the known world and conquer it. But yet that's just another kingdom that's not going to endure. And there is a kingdom that is going to do, endure. And it is the kingdom of the one represented by the great stone that crushes that great statue. And the remnants of the statue are blown away as chaff. And so dark days... But where is that glimmer of the light of the world? It's found in the faithful word of these Old Testament prophets. And so we see 
upon or after the deportion, 70 years, just as God said there would be what I call the, the frustrating return. And you'll hear me say, the, those that come on Wednesday night when we've worked through these texts, in my estimation, the return wasn't much. It, it, it just wasn't that glorious. They were not that powerful. The temple wasn't that beautiful. It wasn't that impressive. Uh, they were poor people returning to a poor land, and yet God brought them back because he said he was going to bring them back. Now, I want to be very careful when I say the frustrating return, and the return wasn't much. We talk about these things sometimes. If you were to go, let's just, for example, go to deepest, darkest Africa, and you found two believers gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were surrounded by warring, great warring nations with all kinds of power. And they could, in one sense, wipe out those two individuals who were gathered in my name. And those that are gathered in my name, he has promised that I will be in your midst. Now, in that example... Where is the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth located? Where is the greatest location of power in all of creation located? Among those two puny believers. That's the greatest kingdom. So it didn't look like much at that time. And maybe sometimes we look at the kingdom, the church, and we think maybe it's not much. But within our realm is the power, the power of the gospel, to raise the dead, to bring about the greatest of all miracles, namely the regeneration of a heart of stone, to bring the message that through which God takes this heart of stone and turns it into heart of flesh. Would any of you like to take a rock home with you today and see how well you may turn that rock into a heart of flesh? Only God can do that. So we, we see here this, this frustrating uh, return, and, and the names mentioned here, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Now, we, we know about those guys, and uh, Zerubbabel is among the first of the returnees. And here's the thing about the returnees. About 730, 739 B.C., 150 years before all this stuff happens, really about 200 years before it all happens, Isaiah writes a prophecy found in Isaiah 44 and said, Cyrus is going to be my anointed, and he's going to shepherd my people, and he's going to bring them home. Guess what happens in 539 B.C.? There is a king that rises to power that's of the kingdom that succeeded the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. His name is Cyrus, and he says, Jews, y'all can go home. Y'all can go home. Isaiah said it was going to happen. Called him by name. And says, y'all can go home. And so in 539, they go back under this man Zerubbabel. The temple starts to be uh, reconstructed. And again, it wasn't, wasn't really uh, that much. But they're, they're instructed to rebuild the temple and restore the appropriate uh, worship of God. And yet it seems the gist I get in this particular story of the rebuilding of the house told by Haggai is those that remembered the original temple, they wept because it just wasn't much. And then Haggai says, but wait a minute. The glory of this second house is going to surpass the glory of this first house. It's going to surpass it. How does that happen? It wasn't much. Even Herod's great temple, while visually was great, there really weren't great things that occurred in it. So how is it God will fulfill his promise? And so for about 20 years, they, they work on the temple through Ezra and Nehemiah during this time frame is where the story of Esther occurs. And so over about 20 years, 
the nation returns, and the temple is dedicated in 515 B.C. 586, Jerusalem is destroyed. Okay, kind of the end of the de deporting of the Jews, okay? 515, the temple is dedicated. How long is that in round numbers? Come on, 70 years. Now, Cyrus said you could do it. They did it. God's word is fulfilled. And as I mentioned a moment ago, here's what's going on in the world, and Daniel lays it all out okay, is the kingdom, the, the, the exiles return. It wasn't much, and they're only there for about 200 years until Alexander the Great prophesied in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 as this great ram that charges across the known world. And then he dies, and there's four that come after him, which is exactly what happened to his kingdom. And so, this is important because do you know what language the New Testament was written in? Greek. Greek. And we call that period under Alexander the Hellenization of that world. And so it would ultimately be surpassed by another kingdom. And the most prominent figure in that is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 168 B.C., okay, Alexander's kingdom, a couple of hundred years. 168 B.C., he goes into the temple and desecrates the temple. Daniel refers to it as the abomination of desolation. And after that occurs, there's what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And in some ways, it was very heroic, but it actually set the stage for the apostasy of Judaism during the time of Jesus because it becomes very corrupt as time plays out. And in 63 B.C., the Romans come and conquer the area of Palestine, the Jewish nation, once again. And the temple is once again desecrated. Okay? And they appoint a man by the name of Herod, who we see in our New Testament as the king ruling over that realm at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he builds this colossal temple. Not, to a not as a testimony to God, but as a testimony to himself as a great builder and a great architect. And so they return. I don't know of any historian that would describe the post-exilic nation of Judah as a great nation as a dominant, as living in fulfillment of the blessings of God. But God is at work. God has preserved through all of these various conquests, the up and downs, the different potentates that come to power, God's still working out his plan. Well, let's look at a kind of a final word here from uh, this particular text. So, in verse 17, excuse me, in verse uh, uh, 16, we see the mention of Jesus' earthly father, Jacob. And I think it's kind of interesting, another set of brackets. From the prominent and powerful and prosperous patriarch Abraham to the nobody Jacob. That's just kind of a there's just something that catches my attention there. You, you have this prominent and powerful guy, Abraham, who can't have children, and God gives him one. And you have this nobody named Jacob who's going to, in a very unique way, have a child whose name is Jesus. I could, I could really do some things with that, but again, time's not going to allow me. to. Do. But do you not find that kind of interesting, kind of a way of bracketing these, uh, these genealogies? And, and so we're told, and, and, and notice from chapter, verse 1 through verse 16, there, there are 39 repetitions of a, the verb geneo in different forms. 
What's the father of? What's the father of? Oh, uh, King James begat, 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 okay? But here at Jacob's mention, it becomes a passive verb because Jacob had no active responsibility in the birth, in the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and so it's not that Jacob begat Jesus. It is Jacob, the father of Joseph. And again, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph begat Jesus, but passively he was the father. He was legally the father, not biologically the father. And so all kinds of things going on structurally. Notice the summary in verse 17. Three groups of 14 generations. Now, I'm not a Bible numerology guy, okay? But there really is significance uh, to that. Uh, you got the three and the four make seven. Uh, you got three times, the 14. Uh, do you know what a, a gematria is? It's, it's assigning numeral va numeric values to letters. Now look, I know all of you read Hal, Hal Lindsey at one time, and you know that Mikhail Gorbachev was, you know, how 666 were. I mean, that's, that's what that is. The consonants of the Hebrew name for David is Dawid, and it's Dalit, Wow, Dalit. And the Dalit stands for four, the Wa stands for six, and the second Dalit stands for four. That adds up to what? Fourteen. Three fourteens. Three, the number of perfection. The perfect son of Dawid would consummate in the fourteenth generation, or the third, 14th generation. And so we've covered 2,000 years of history. God has demonstrated his faithfulness through these generations. He has now, in the, in the process, so to speak, of presenting his son, Matthew is going to prove what he has asserted here, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the faithful God. He is the purpose for all that has gone uh, before him. And so God's purpose is to manifest his glory in his son. That's how the glory of this house surpasses the glory of the former house. That God is going to have a kingdom. That he is going to bless forever. That God preserves his people. That, that he has a people now among whom he dwells. Right now, right here, right in this moment. And he has claimed a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we see in here God faithful to those he promised, but also faithful to himself. That that which he has said he will do, he will do. So the people of God have always been called upon to wait patiently by faith. That's what we do. We see the promises. We experience some aspect of the fulfillment of the promise. We live in the now, and we anticipate the not yet. The not yet that is now to come. The not yet that because God has a track record of faithfulness, because he has demonstrated his faithfulness in our own lives, we live in this age, knowing that God will ultimately accomplish and perfect his purpose. The purpose accomplished through the one who is the answer to the question. Who is this king of glory? His name is Jesus. He is the purpose for all that had come before him. He is the purpose for all that comes after him. He is the reason that we gather each and every week to celebrate who he is and what he has done. He is the reason that we set aside this season we call Christmas. 
to be particularly and especially reminded that even in the darkest of nights, I think the, the night can be pretty dark sometimes. I'll just tell you that. But even in the darkest of night, even when the temple is destroyed, even when the king is deposed, there is a God who has promised that he is the faithful one. And he is the one that's made the promise and is fulfilling the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. They weren't forsaken in Babylon. And we aren't forsaken now as we await that day. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth. Because of the fallenness of the world, and part of that fallenness is our own weakness. Our own frailty and faults, Lord, so many times. We find ourselves in the sea of despair. We're concerned about what is next. How are you going to deliver your people? Lord, may we always be reminded on this day, on every day, that indeed you are the faithful God, that even in the seasons, even in the centuries that you are at work and you're at work claiming a people among whom you will reveal yourself and fulfill the great promise, the great prayer of our Savior, that we will revel in the glory of our King forever and ever and ever. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.